see you guys this morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this building. As I say, just about every week, I think. Uh, if you're new, if we haven't met, my name's Jamie, guy who gets to open up the scriptures most Sunday Sundays and unpack God's word for us uh, as we gather in this place. And we're surely going to do that this morning. If you are new, would love to, to connect before you head out the door after the service if you are inclined to, to stick around and do so. Uh, this morning, um, I do want to mention we've been on a journey, if you're new, uh, you wouldn't know this, uh, through the book of Luke for quite some time now, having worked our way up to this point through 15 chapters and some change, I believe, uh, a journey that will likely come to its end around the time that the summer comes to a close, which means that we've got quite a bit of ground to cover over the course of the next five or six months. However, uh, there are times when a rest stop or two uh, is appropriate on a long journey, even at the risk of delaying the estimated time of arrival. And th- this morning would be one of those moments. We're going to veer off the beaten path in our journey through the book of Luke in order to spend a little bit of time at one of those rest stops. For, for those who may not know, we're on a different kind of journey of sorts at the same time that we find ourselves on this journey through the book of Luke, namely our journey toward the establishment of elders and deacons locally. Um, if you explore some of the, the documentation of our church, statement of faith, bylaws, partnership booklet, etc., cetera, you'll, you'll come across um, the kind of language that captures the following understanding of church government, namely that the church is to be led by a plurality of biblically qualified pastor elders who are themselves under the kind and gentle authority of Jesus Christ. Uh, There's a reason we're singing the songs that we're singing this morning, namely because we believe that Jesus is the apostle who plants the church, Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1, that Jesus is the senior pastor who leads the church, 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 4, that Jesus is the head of the church, Colossians chapters 1 and 2, We believe that Jesus grows and builds a church, uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, and Jesus shuts down a church for becoming faithless or fruitless, Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, that Jesus is the reason, the foundation, and the purpose for why the church even exists in the first place. Therefore, it's absolutely vital that as a church, we love Jesus, we obey Jesus, we imitate Jesus, and we follow Jesus at all times and in all ways according to the teaching of his word. That it's in submission to Jesus and under the authority of Jesus who sits at the top of the org chart that the offices of the church have been established. The office of elder, the elders being the servant leaders under Jesus, and the office of deacon, the deacons being the lead servants in and of the church. The two offices of elder and deacon, they show up not only in 1 Timothy 3, which we'll spend a little bit of time in a little later this morning, where the qualifications for both of those offices are laid out, but also in Philippians chapter 1, where the apostle Paul begins his letter to the church in Philippi with these words, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. You have the overseers, the deacons, and the saints. Overseer being synonymous with elder among a few different terms uh, used to communicate the various aspects of that one and same role or office. We'll look into that more next week when we get into the responsibilities of an elder. But more broadly speaking, as we move closer to the establishment of local elders and deacons, it's important that, that we all are clear on what the scriptures teach about these offices of the church. And so we're gonna spend the next couple weeks exploring in an introductory way the topic of biblical eldership. 
with a follow-up series on biblical deaconship to come. Somewhere down the road, TBD. And, and, and in part, here's, here's why we need to do this. For, for those of you who don't know, and, and most of you do, we're a non-denominational church that's a part of a non-denominational network, the Acts 29 network. And with that, there's an opportunity for many backgrounds, many experiences, many traditions to come into a church like this with uh, traditions involving bishops for some and presbyteries for others, experiences of senior pastors and deacon teams, many of those churches of which deacons are actually eldering, not truly deaconing according to the scriptures, congregationalist churches where yay cards and nay cards are being raised to vote on everything. There are all kinds of expressions of church government out there. When you add to that, that we exist as a church in a context that is hyper-churched and under-gospeled, and therefore people are simply hungry for, can you give me the Bible and the gospel? I just want those two things, please. And so when they find it in a church like ours, they're hungry and they come in, and many of you, this is your experience, despite those different backgrounds, and are happy to be a part of a gospel-centered church that seeks to be faithful to God's word. Even among those who would affirm uh, an elder-led model of church government, there are a variety of, of perspectives as to what kind of person an elder should be and what kind of responsibilities an elder should embrace. We'll get into some misconceptions regarding uh, biblical eldership soon enough. Um, I had every intention of beginning our time this morning in the scriptures reasoning a couple of key foundational doctrines having to do with this idea of biblical eldership right out of the gate. For one, shared leadership, as we see in a number of places in Scripture, a pattern of a plurality of elders governing the church. And secondly, a complementarian leadership, a plurality composed of biblically qualified men without diminishing in the least the dignity, worth, and significance of women in the life of the local church. I hope by way of just the visible expressions of our serving teams and team leads that, that you would see that, that we deeply care about women in the life of the local church. Unfortunately, to, to try to get into the scriptures to reason those things this morning, uh, we'd be here till probably three in the afternoon. And so maybe we'll come back sometime and, and tag on a prequel to this two-week mini-series that gets into the depths of, of ideas like complementarianism and where they find their roots going all the way back to the story of creation. We have spent some time there, by the way. If you go back to our series entitled The Story, you'll find some of those teachings there. Uh, First Corinthians, we spent some time on God's divine design. But for this morning... We're going to spend some time on the qualifications of an elder, what God's looking for, and then next week we'll get into the responsibilities of an elder in hopes of bringing clarity where clarity is needed for the blessing and benefit of the church. And lest we think that this is going to be incredibly boring for most of us, that this may not have practical application for as it pertains to the governance of the church let me just go ahead and say right out of the gate, let me give away the ending from the, the beginning that where we're going in the scriptures this morning, the heartbeat of those scriptures is for any who would profess to follow Jesus. And so keep that in mind as we open up the Bible together. I want to start in 1 Samuel 16. If you have a Bible, you can go there. We'll eventually work our way into the New Testament, spend a little bit of time in 1 Timothy 3. 
If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can track on the screen behind me. This morning's passage will be up there as well as any other passages of, of Scripture that we may go to outside of those two passages. Let me go and pray for us um, as we prepare to spend some time in the Scriptures together this morning. Heavenly Father, praise you for the plan that was decreed before the foundations of the world that you would send your son into the slums of a broken humanity to rescue lost sinners to yourself. This beautiful story of redemption of which we get glimpses of as we pick up the scriptures each and every week in gatherings like these. From creation to consummation and everything in between, we get something of the heartbeat of your kingdom and what it is like. I pray that you would give us a taste of that kingdom this morning and the implications and the outworkings in our very lives, the implications for your church. God, we're desperate for you. The world around us is screaming so many things as it pertains to what success is, what notions of leadership are, what you care about most. And so I pray that as a result of our time in your word this morning, that you would awaken our minds and our hearts to that which is in accordance with your kingdom, with your heart. And Lord, that as we leave this place this morning, that we would leave changed, transformed, that we would be men and women after your own heart, that we would even understand what that means as we leave this place today. Spirit of God, we're desperate for you to move. As I say often, if you don't, this will be an exercise in futility. And so I plead with you. I plead, I urge you to stir and to move in power in this place this morning as we sit with the authority of the very word that you've inspired, Spirit of God. Would you move in power that you, Father, Son, and Spirit, might receive the glory and that we might leave in joy this morning, having sat with your word in hand. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and King, I pray. Amen. The events of 1 Samuel... They take place in the, in the wake of some incredibly significant moments in redemptive history. You have the story of the Exodus, Israel's rescue from Egyptian enslavement, followed by the covenant God made with Israel at Mount Sinai, ultimately the entrance of the Israelites into the promised land, a land in which they were to walk in covenant obedience and faithfulness in light of God's great work of redemption which if you read the book of Judges, we're told they failed miserably at during that time, in the days in which everyone, the Bible tells us, did what was right in his own eyes. Setting the stage for the tribes of Israel ruled by those judges to transition into a united kingdom, eventually under the rule of King David. That's the brief lay of the land as we pick up the book of 1 Samuel, a book that begins with the story of Hannah and her song of praise, a woman who many of you know had experienced great sorrow in her inability to conceive children and whose cries for mercy were met with the gift of a son, Samuel. 
As the story goes, Hannah was so moved by God's mercy and kindness that she couldn't help but sing. And whose, uh, uh, whose song captures the major themes of both First and Second Samuel. That right out of the gate you get the heartbeat of these two books in this very song. The themes of God's opposing of the proud and exalting of the humble. The theme of God orchestrating his purposes despite human wickedness. The theme of God's promise to someday raise up a messianic king for his people. It's in the wake of that song that the events of 1 Samuel unfold, including the, the Philistines' defeat of the Israelites and capturing of the Ark of the Covenant as punishment for Israel's pride and treating the Ark like some sort of lucky charm. Followed by the Lord's defeating of the Philistines as punishment for their own pride in placing the, the captured Ark in the temple of their so-called god Dagon. It's on the other side of those two stories that the, the Israelites go to Samuel declaring their longing for a king like the many surrounding nations. A rejection of God in being king over them. In their forsaking of God, the serving of gods of their own making. And so the scriptures declare that God gave them what they wanted. Tall, handsome, broad-shouldered Saul. A man who looked the part of a king for sure in outward appearance, yet was deeply flawed in terms of his character, lacking in integrity, pridefully blinded to his own flaws. A man who, who would win a few battles early on, but whose story would ultimately end in rebellion and rejection, setting the stage for a new king. If you pick up the story in 1 Samuel 16, verse 1, we're told, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. As you pick up the story, we, we find Samuel grieving over Saul, a man whose kingship had started out with such promise yet whose willful disobedience would ultimately lead to his demise. And we're told that, that the Lord declares to Samuel, I've got some good news. Grab the anointing oil. I have provided for myself a king. And immediately, notice, God communicates in the details that he's not interested in operating according to the world's standards. As he tells Samuel to go to lowly Bethlehem. Too little to be among the clans of Judah, Micah 5 verse 2 tells us. And Samuel said, verse 2, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel is filled with fear uncertainty as he considers the marching orders that he's been given. And the Lord in his kindness provides a way for Samuel to go without drawing it, uh, the attention of Saul and his men, commanding him to travel to, to Bethlehem with an animal in hand, to be sacrificed in the city out of which the next in line to the throne would come. And with that, to invite Jesse into that ceremonial gathering along with his sons as the next king was to come from his line. Verse 4, Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. 
Consecrate yourselves. Come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Clearly, Samuel was a a holy man, a man of prominence. His arrival to Bethlehem evoking fear in the hearts of the elders who wondered if Samuel had come to bring the rebuke of the Lord upon the city. And Samuel quickly puts them at ease, declaring that he's come in peace to sacrifice to the Lord. And he gets everything squared away for this ceremonial gathering that's to take place, including the invitation and consecration of Jesse and his boys. And somewhere in the midst of the festivities, we're told, verse 6, when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Samuel did, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. The eldest son, tall, handsome, broad-shouldered like Saul, a man who looked the part of a king in outward appearance. You can just hear Samuel, surely we need to look no further. Bring me the horn of anointing oil. We're done. Verse 7, in the same kind of shocking way that we saw in the story of the prodigal with the elder brother, Verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. In the words of one scholar, here the Lord rebukes the entire worldly approach to evaluation. A world concerned with outward appearance the many things that come with that in accordance with the world's standards of success, a world less concerned with character, the kind of lowliness and humility that makes glad the heart of God. Right? Think about this. Saul had just proved that outward appearance cannot make up for deep character flaws, and yet here we are with the selection of the very next king, and even Samuel himself, God's chosen prophet, cannot help but get caught up in outward appearance. And thousands of years later, we still can't seem to help ourselves. We, the church, church leadership teams, oftentimes composed of of men having been assessed on the basis of the world's expectations, the world's standards, the world's metrics for success. It gets more shocking, verse 8. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. I mean, put yourself in the crowd for a second. And imagine the shock to the system that it must have been to watch Samuel pass by son after son after son, after son, working his way from the eldest to the youngest, each passing, no, not the one, more shocking than the last, till eventually Samuel comes to the end of the line and still Israel is without her next king. Then Samuel said to Jesse, verse 11, are all your sons here? And he said, there there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is... He's keeping the sheep. You can imagine the reluctance on Jesse's part when when asked if all of his sons were were present. I mean, there there is one more, but he's the the youngest among his brothers. We don't even invite him to gatherings like these. He's out in the fields right now. 
The foreshadowing of the messianic king to come, mind you. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him. We will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Samuel says, no, no one's eating till someone goes and gets the boy. And so Jesse sends for his youngest son. And David, fresh from the fields, makes his way near. And we're told, the last part of verse 12, now he was ruddy, had beautiful eyes, and was handsome. Ruddy meaning red, rosy-cheeked in his boyishness. And, and with that, handsome and beautiful-eyed, as the point of the story is not that God's looking for ugliness in appearance. Right? That's not the point of the story at all. The point of the story is that God is looking for a man after his own heart. And the Lord said, when David approached, arise, anoint him, this is he. I've chosen David, the most unexpected of the sons of Jesse, God says, from the city of Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah. What better way to ensure that God and God alone might receive the glory? Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Samuel, verse 13, tells us, took the horn of oil and anointed him anointed David in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. David is not only chosen, but anointed for the, the work that the Lord has for him as the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him. God pres God's presence and power in the life and ministry of his chosen one. It's a, it's a beautiful story that sets the stage for the, the coming of the greater David, is it not? The Lord's anointed Jesus Christ whose birthplace would be the very same lowly Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah, who would too receive his own proper anointing and coronation, the approval of the, the Father and the anointing power of the descending spirit at his baptism. The Father declaring, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. In the words of 1 Samuel 16, I have provided for myself a king. In Jesus' day, the people clamored for a king like the nations, just as they had in the days of the judges. And Jesus refused to give them what they wanted, rejecting any notions that he had come to overthrow Roman tyranny. All the while, and we've seen this in the book of Luke, gathering his own ruddy band of followers, redemptive history's own motley crew, turning the expectations of the world upside down on their head every step of the way down to the very last step down the Via Della Rosa. Having lived the perfect life of sinless purity of heart, the life that none of us in this room could ever live, that he might die the death that we deserve to die in our place, the greater shepherd than David who would lay down his life for the sheep, rescuing lost sinners to himself in such a way as to ensure that God and God alone might receive the glory just as in the choosing of David as king. Which is why we have passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, don't miss that, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's Mary's song of praise, borrowing her lyrics from the song of Hannah. Luke chapter one, verses 51 and 52. He, the Lord, has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. The Mary's song, it's the song of the gospel. It's the song of ultimate triumph through seeming weakness. That the God of Christianity is a promise-keeping God who fulfills his promises to and through the lowly. And we see it all over the, the pages of Scripture. God fulfilling his promises through the small, lowly nation of Israel. Establishing a throne through the young shepherd boy David. Preserving the messianic line through barren women and younger brothers. What should we expect then when we consider the qualifications for church leadership, specifically eldership? Well, the story of David, as, as well as the story of the greater David into the world, his entrance reminds us that the Lord's rebuke is on the entire worldly approach to evaluation and assessment. I mean, if we're honest, there's a part of us that wants a king like the nation's. A leadership team that looks like the world's notions of success. Boy, if 2020 didn't bring that out in a lot of churches. What does the Lord want? 1 Timothy 3. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer or elder, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, Self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. 1 Timothy 3, it presents us with the most extensive list of qualifications for eldership in the scriptures. And you'll notice even at a cursory glance, you don't need a study Bible to see this, that most of this list has to do with Christian character. Notice what's not on the list. As Paul says, nothing about personality type. He says nothing about entrepreneurial giftedness. He says nothing about business acumen. Not that those things are bad in and of themselves. The point is that it should come as no surprise to us that the Lord hasn't stopped looking on the heart. Though a great many, even within the church, continue to look on the outward appearance. The interview process, I've been in interviews like these for a lot of pastoral candidates in our day what do you know and what can you do 
We're interested in your head and your hands. Full-on heart bypass every step of the way. Character, if it comes up at all, it gets some sort of yellow participation ribbon in the conversation at best. We want a king like the nations, a leadership that can help us to keep up with the world's notions of success. And the Lord says, that's not what I want. We'll get into to some of the competency qualifications next week as we look at the responsibilities of an elder that warrant those competencies. So we're not going to go through everything on this list here in 1 Timothy 3, but let me just briefly walk through the list of character qualifications for eldership, pointing out from the start that, and I said this a moment ago, we should all aspire to these things, regardless of our place in the church. It's not that the leadership of the church should be gentle and not violent, but the saints should be violent all the while. It's not that the leadership should seek unity while the saints are quarrelsome all the while. No, all of these character attributes are things that we should all aspire to because they are our conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. As we work through this passage, and we'll do it briefly, again, this is a, this is a primer, a 101, so to speak. I do want to note that Titus 1 brings its own list to bear very similar to 1 Timothy 3 with some minor altercations. And so I'm going to do my best as we walk through 1 Timothy 3 to bring in those minor alterations so as to present us with a fuller picture of what the Lord wants for the eldership of his church. Look from the beginning. An overseer or elder must be above reproach. In other words, one who exemplifies Christ's likeness, who lives in a way that doesn't bring reproach upon the church. He must be the husband of one wife, a one-woman man, someone who honors the covenant of marriage as a representation of the covenant between Jesus and his bride, the church. Does that mean that single men can't be elders? Well, I'm personally hesitant to embrace an interpretation that would preclude not only the apostle Paul, but Jesus Christ himself from eldership. After all, Jesus is the chief shepherd of the church, Right, the one who grants authority to the eldership, the under-shepherds of any church. An elder, Paul says, must be sober-minded, self-controlled. And I would add to that, Titus 1, disciplined. A person who's balanced, not running to extremes in everything. Again, 2020 was very helpful there. The great squeeze, as I've referred to it as producing the juice of, of extremism or balance and sound judgment. You can include, along with sober-mindedness and self-control, not a drunkard as one example of those things. A man not enslaved by the things of this world, but led by, filled with, and controlled by the Holy Spirit. An elder must be respectable and hospitable, honorable, dignified, Extending kindness to others, compassion and care. Not violent, Paul says, but gentle, not quarrelsome. And I would add to that, Titus 1, not quick-tempered. One who's not combative nor aggressive with people. One who doesn't bully others or lead in a domineering way. Rather, in the words of one scholar, gentle giants. Exercising their authority with the tenderness of a shepherd and the sensitivity of a loving father forbearing with people, patient with people. In one of the readings I sat with this week, his words are not acid or divisive, but helpful and encouraging. 
not arrogant, as we see in Titus chapter 1. Not filled with pride or self-willed. Not a my way or the highway kind of person. A servant leader. A man whose gentleness is coupled with humility. Such that he likely wrestles with whether he has any business being an elder in the first place. After all, he doesn't wake up each day thinking highly of himself, but rather highly of the Lord Jesus. Not a lover of money, not greedy for gain, generous in stewarding that which he has for the the kingdom, concerned with and happy to spend and be spent for the glory of God. Not a recent convert, having something of a track record, particularly in humility. Lest the notion of eldering the church fill him with conceit. Well thought of by outsiders. One of whom even unbelievers are inclined to speak well. His life and presence itself an apologetic for the gospel. A lover of good, Titus 1. Upright and holy. One who cares about and is devoted to goodness and justice. And ultimately devoted to Christ from whom goodness and justice flow. Paul unapologetically drives at the heart of Christ-exemplifying character in the list of elder qualifications that he presents to both Timothy and Titus. Yet a couple of other things sprinkled in there. We'll get to them next week about managing one's household well and the ability to teach. But it's mostly character. And Peter adds to that a few words regarding Christ-exalting motivations for eldering which too fall under the category of Christ-exemplifying character. 1 Peter 5, the first three verses of that chapter, Peter says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Not under compulsion, Peter says. Willingly, as God would have you. Not an unwanted, begrudging obligation, but rather willing desire to shepherd the flock for the glory of Jesus. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Again, not, not in it for selfish reasons, but rather for the flourishing of the church and the glory of God alone. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. That eldership is not a a platform for the feeding of egos and the wielding of heavy hands. It's an opportunity to display the servant leadership and sacrificial love characterized by Jesus Christ. The loving, tender, and nurturing care of a godly man who is himself under the kind and gentle authority of the Lord Jesus. You might ask, who is sufficient for these things? How does any church have elders? Is anyone truly qualified? To which I would point us back to David, whom none of us would say was a perfect man. I mean, sure, he had some attributes worth imitating, but he also had an adulterous affair and a murderous cover-up on his resume. In the words of one scholar, For being a man after God's own heart, David managed to follow his own heart quite a bit. But here's one thing that you cannot ignore in the life of David if you've read about him in the Old Testament. 
Something that, that we all, again, not just those who aspire to eldership can learn from. Namely, that David was far more willing to overlook the sins of others than his own. Sparing his enemies over and over again and extending mercy and forgiveness while responding to his own sin with contrition and repentance when confronted. You see it not only in the historical accounts of the Old Testament narratives, but in the Psalms of Confession that David has written. And that's good news for all of us, not just the eldership of a church. If God were looking for perfection, we'd all be done for. Our only hope for perfection is the perfect record of the Lord Jesus in our place. Amen? The good news is, in terms of eldership and really and truly for the church overall, God isn't looking for perfection. He's looking for faith and repentance. Those committed to giving their lives for the glory of the one perfect man, Jesus Christ. And so that's the kind of church that we're aiming to be. As it pertains to our leadership, as it pertains to the flock, our very lives, our ambitions as a church. We're not interested in the notions of of success that the world brings to the table. We're interested in in trying to stay in stride with this, this pattern that we see throughout the scriptures from beginning to end. The upside-down nature of the kingdom of God that most of the world would look in on and go, have you lost your mind? And we would say, yes, we have for Jesus. We want to do things in such a way that God and God alone gets the glory and not us. And so I pray that rests on you. I pray that you, you, you expand this out beyond church leadership to the heartbeat and culture of this church and that you're encouraged by that. We've been sitting with it for a long time. The book of Luke just keeps putting it in our face, right? The contrast between the kingdom of this world and and the kingdom of Jesus, the notions of success, the ideologies that Jesus over and over and over again just pushes back on and says, no, here's, here's what I've come to do. And here's who I've come to be. In a moment, we're gonna continue to worship him because he's the one who's worthy of worship. Not any man or woman, but the God-man, Jesus Christ. Continue to sing these songs that proclaim his excellencies, his goodness, his glory, his grace. Encourage you to sing loudly as we bring our collective song together. As you consider that Jesus brought a perfect record to the cross on your behalf. As we continue to worship through the receiving of the Lord's Supper, if you're a Christian, that meal is for you. If you missed it on your way in, there are cups on the back table. You're welcome to go grab one of those over the course of these last few songs. If you're a Christian, that meal is for for you. As you take the the bread representing the, the broken body of Jesus and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood, pray that your heart would, would be awakened to the beauty and the hope of Christ your perfection and the one who enables you by his spirit to then walk in repentance and faith to live this thing out, this essence of the kingdom and the sanctifying character and work that God is doing in his people for his glory. 
If you're not a Christian, I'd encourage you not to partake of the bread and the cup, but that your next step would be one of repentance and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. The first sermon I I remember preaching here, and I'll pray for us in a moment after I share this. I believe I said that I'd spent a little bit too much time on the sermon that week because I cared way too much about what people in this very room would think of me. And I wanted to be clear then to say in confessing that, that it's not about me. It's about Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. I pray by God's grace that it will always be about Jesus.